Um, man, good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, as Rick just read for us, if you haven't yet, please open your Bible to John 15. That's where we're at this morning. We're beginning a new three-week sermon series uh, right here through um, our new Why We Exist statement as a church. Um, these are three texts that have really sort of birthed um, our understanding of this statement in many ways. And as I said last week, our elder team has been meeting since last November, uh, just praying and planning and thinking through, um, you know, who are we as a church and what has God called us to do and what He's called us to be really as His people. And so, um, if you're new to GBC, this is a really great time to engage and to be here and to hear about who we are as a church. And if you've been here for 13 plus years, our, our entirety of our church's existence, which some of you, I believe, have, um, I think you'll find that this is not like a dramatic change of course in a way, but you could call this more a clarifying of course about who we are and what we're all about. And I think really having clarity for why we exist is really important. I think a story I heard that, that really uh, summarizes this idea really well um, was told about a construction crew. Um, a roadwork crew to be exact, that um, went over and relieved another roadwork crew from their labors. And this roadwork crew was digging this trench along the side of a road. And uh, so this new roadwork crew shows up and the foreman told them, all right, I need you to dig a trench that's four feet deep and 30 feet long. And they did that and they dug the trench. It took them about an hour to dig the trench. And then after they dug the trench, the foreman said, all right, fill in the hole with the dirt you just dug, right? And then move on and do another 30 foot long trench with four feet deep. They all said, okay, they filled in the trench. They moved on, they dug another trench. That took them two hours that time to dig. After they dug that trench, the foreman said, all right, fill in the trench again. I want you to go down and do it again, 30 feet long, four feet deep. By this, by this time, the roadwork crew is extremely exasperated. They're frustrated. They're beginning to think like, what in the world is going on? Like, why are we doing this thing? We keep digging this trench, exerting all this effort, and it amounts to nothing. And it finally dawned on the foreman that he had never told them why they were supposed to be digging the trench. And so he said, do you see that building over there? It's about a quarter mile away. So do you see that building? That's an orphanage. It has about 60 kids in the orphanage. And the water line that uh, goes to that house has a crack in it, has a leak. And there's this runoff from this cow pasture that's getting into the leak, and it's making all the kids in the orphanage sick. So we need to identify where the leak is, fix it, so those kids could be well, right? So the crew dug a 50-foot-long trench, four feet deep, it only took about 30 minutes. They found the leak, everything was fixed, and all the guys were like, oh man, all that sweat was worth it, right? It was completely worth it. So they moved from one place of frustration and one place to this generated excitement to want to help, all because they figured out why they're doing what they're doing. And I think for many of us in the way that we are a church and live as Christians in this world, we often have these questions like, why are we doing this? You can come to points in your life where you're going through the motions for so long that if you're honest with yourself, you step back and you're like, why are we here? Why are we singing? Why does Warren read a call to worship? Why do we do a benediction, you know? Are we just going through the motions? Why are we doing these things? What are we doing here as a church? And I think, really, we should be asking the question, why did God birth GBC in the later part of the last decade. Why did he do that? Why here in Gresham, Oregon? Like, why would God create a brand new church in that way? Well, I hope that this really, these next few weeks really provides some of that clarity. And if you're not asking for that clarity today, I bet you, you will be there someday. 
And so a statement like this is really meant to be an anchoring statement that you and I return to time and time again to remind ourselves why we're here and what we're all about. And so here we go. This will be on the screen. You can find it on our website. But this is our, our why we exist statement as a church. We exist to glorify God in being disciples who make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. That's why we're here. We exist to glorify God. That's why we exist. And we do so in being disciples who then go out and make disciples of all people through the transforming power of the gospel. And so this, this day, this today, John 15, is where we're really going to see how we exist to glorify God in being disciples. Right? We exist to do that. Next week, we're going to look at what we're actually called to do, and that's to make other disciples of all people. Right? And then last week, we'll see how it is that we're actually going to be going about doing that as a church. I can't think of a better text that speaks to this than John chapter 15, and so um, this will be on the screen for you, I believe, but here's kind of the, the structure, the outline of what we see here, that being a disciple, you guys, is first and foremost, it's a call to abide. It's a call to abide. You're not called to do anything versus abide, right? So being a disciple is a call to abide, and our text shows us kind of two things underneath that, the need to abide in verses 1 through 6 and how we abide in verses 7 through 11. And then secondly, we see here that glorifying God is a call to bear fruit through our abiding, not divorced from it, right? So glorifying God is a call to bear fruit. All right, so let's look at this together, that being a disciple is a call to abide, verses 1 through 11, right? So here we first see the need for us to abide. I want to read again verses 1 through 6 for us. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing." If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. <clears throat> so Jesus tells a parable of sorts here, and this is kind of one of the iconic, there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is one of them, and he says in verse one here, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. That's what he says. This uh, sounds beautiful and botanical to us. I don't know if you have a vine. Maybe you like vines. I don't know. Maybe this sounds lovely to you. But to a first century audience, this would have been a little bit jarring because the Old Testament frequently likened God's people to being a vineyard, to being a vine. He called His people Israel a vine. So it wasn't a reference to a person versus a people. We have a couple songs in the Old Testament called vineyard songs. This is really important. Uh, for background, but um, one, for example, here is from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Uh, I'd encourage you to read it, but I'll read part of it for you. Uh, it says, it should be on the screen here. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, right? So, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. 
It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, or righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So, so in the Old Testament, the vine's purpose was to actually bear fruit for its owner, which is God, okay? These people were made a people by God. They're called to bear fruit that likens God and His will, and they, they fail to do that, okay? This is stressing their failure time and time again. And so, in contrast to Israel's failure to bear fruit, Jesus is saying that He's the true Israel, right? That He's the true vine, that He's producing the fruit that Israel failed to produce. Jesus is fulfilling Israel's purpose as the true vine of God, okay? So, this, this claim is enormous. If you want to experience life then, if you want to be counted among God's people, you don't become Jewish, you don't have to join the nation of Israel, right? You call upon Jesus to save you, and you entrust your life to Him, and in turn, you are united to Him, right? You are grafted into the vine, His life. So, salvation and discipleship, following Jesus, is a life of union and communion. It's a life of experiencing oneness with Jesus, where the sap from His vine is flowing into you, right? You're experiencing His union, but you're also experiencing that communion with Him. My guys, true life, we're being told here, comes from Jesus and Jesus only. We, therefore, need Jesus, right? I'm telling you, no matter who you are this morning, you need Jesus. Like, you desperately need Him. Our need for Jesus, and in turn, what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus, is, it's really summed up throughout these verses in this one word, abide, right? Which sounds like a great word. I mean, who doesn't like the word abide? I, I don't know how much you use it, but, um, but, uh, but abide, that's what this word is, right? What does this mean? Well, abide literally means just to take up residence in Jesus. This is, this is location language. This is home language, if you will. It's, it's making Jesus your home. It's coming to Him in faith, and in turn, what this is telling you is that Jesus of sorts changes your zip code, like He changes your eternal address to now be found in Him, right? This is the heart of what it means to be a disciple, but it's a, it's a really sobering warning, and that's what we see we, in here in these verses, and that's why we have this need to abide. Because what does it say? If you don't abide, you will experience what? You'll experience death and destruction, which, I mean, no one wants that, right? No one wants that. I mean, I, I don't mean you will experience a physical death. You won't experience that if you abide in Jesus. We will all die, right? There's a 100% chance of that, unless you're Enoch or Elijah, but those are completely different sermons, right? But here you even say, furthermore, verse 2 says, if you don't abide, you are cut away from the source of true life. Right? If you don't abide, it says the branch in verse 4 cannot bear fruit by itself. If you've hung out with anything um, that's botanical, you know that as a no-duh statement, right? Verse 5 says that apart from Jesus, the true vine, you can do nothing, right? Nothing doesn't mean nothing, Right? Because clearly a lot of people who aren't connected to Jesus are doing a lot of things in this world, religious things even, good things even, 
right? Nothing here means nothing of eternal value. Nothing that you will do will ultimately last, right? It's, it's underscoring the idea that, that it's important for us to be more than is important for us to do, right? You can do a lot of things in life, but apart from Jesus, apart from being with Christ, you're, that amounts to nothing, nothing that will last. And then verse 6 says that you will wither, and eventually at the end of it all, there will be judgment. Right? Jesus is using word pictures here, but it's, it's really sobering. It's using fire and burning as a way to communicate divine judgment and ultimate death, okay? Divine judgment and ultimate death. You, you probably um, can vividly recall the, um, the crazy windstorms that we've recently had, you know, what kicked up all the fires and all the smoke and that kind of thing. And I bet you, I don't even know where you live, but I bet you if you had any sorts of branches or trees, those were just falling off of your, your trees all over your yard. So I have these birch trees in my front yard that was just dropping branches left and right. And so after all the wind had died down, um, I did the same thing that I'm guessing you did, right? You probably went out into your yard, you gathered up all those limbs. And I know one thing that you probably didn't do. I bet you didn't go over and try to reattach those to the tree, right? I bet you didn't do that. If you did, how's that working out for you? You know, probably not very good because what happens? You go over and you pick up those limbs. They were already extremely dry. They were extremely brittle. And I did what everybody else did, right? I gathered them. You could either use them for firewood or you can throw them in your yard debris. So I threw them in my yard debris, right? Because they're worthless. There's no life in them anymore. There's no value to them. But that's the exact image that we see here. What Jesus is talking about is that you've reached the point where you can't be replanted. You can't be grafted into the vine. You're without hope at that point. There's no return. It's it's really important here because I think for many of us, we get kind of nervous. We're like, well, man, if I don't don't keep up, you know, like is Jesus going to cut me off? Like if I don't If I don't do well enough in life, if I don't exert myself enough, will He cut me off? But notice here that Jesus, He's giving the disciples this image in the upper room right before He goes to the cross. And look at what has happened right before this. He had just washed His disciples' feet, He washed Judas' feet, and Judas has just left to betray Him, the disciple that has associated with Him for years. So in this context, the point is actually really clear. There are some, maybe even us, who can spend a lot of time with Jesus, a considerable amount of time with God's people, and we could eventually prove that Christ's love was was never our sap, you know? It was never our food. And so in having no sap from Christ, we don't bear fruit. We dry up. In other words, our dead branches are not merely weak, you know, we're struggling as a believer for a long time, that kind of idea, but we eventually prove that we never had any living connection to the vine. And Judas is an example of that. Judas is an example of that. So we see our need to abide in Jesus, that He is the true vine, that He is the true vine right? This is the emphasis. Well, then, how do you be then? How do you be? How do you abide? Well, we actually see that in verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. And if I can even get my page to turn over here. 
What does it say in verse 7? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, may be full. I think if you've been around the Christian faith for a while, like I've said, you've probably heard the word abide a lot. And if you're pretty abstract and artsy, you know, you might love that and you just feel like intuitively like you get it, right? What it means to abide, you're just kind of, it's a feel for you kind of thing, you know, and you're like, I get that. But for most of us, I would say, um, when we hear the idea of abiding in Jesus, we think, what in the world does that actually mean? I have no idea, let's just move on, you know? But, um, but please, let's not move on because this is actually at the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, right? And what's great about this passage is it shows you how to actually abide, like how to actually do that, okay? There are two things that you see in this passage for how we actually abide, and we know that these are how we actually abide because Jesus tells us to abide in two other things, and when he's telling us to abide in other things, he's not saying, hey, abide in me, but hey, spend some time abiding in that thing, and then spend some time abiding in that thing, as if we're just supposed to rotate around and hope that we bear some fruit kind of idea, right? But no, when Jesus says to abide in these other things, he's telling you how to abide in him, okay? So look at the first thing he tells you to abide in, or more accurately, something that should abide in you. What does it say in verse 7? If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Okay, so how does this verse say that you are to abide? It's by having Jesus' words abide in you. Yes, that definitely would mean Jesus' actual words that you would read in the Gospels or the New Testament, Revelation, places like that. But really, this is a call for you to abide in the entirety of God's Word, right? The Scriptures. Right? Jesus is, is the Son of God. He is a part, one member of the Trinity, right? This is not just we now follow Jesus apart from God kind of thing. No, this is an abiding in the entirety of God's Word. Well, why would we need His words to be in us in order to abide in Jesus? Well, most of us jump right to thinking, well, because we need to know what we're supposed to be doing. You know, that's why we need to have His words abide in us. And that's, that's true, that's important. But primary to that is you and I need to be consistently reminded of what God has done for us and who we are in light of that. Guys, because without time with Jesus, without His words abiding in us, we forget the things that we should remember. And we continually remember the things that we really should forget. That this is what happens in our lives. And so His words abiding in us call to our attention the things that we need to be remembering and it helps push out the things that we really should be moving on from because Jesus has moved us on from those things, right? So the words shape us. The, the words that we digest are, are powerful. They tell us what to think, don't they? Right? They tell us what to see. The words that we abide in tell us what to believe. If you can think back to the beginning of this year, which feels like 10 years ago, right? January 1st or the very first Sunday of the year, I, I doubt you remember this, but, so that's why I'm recalling it to your attention, but I, I preached a message from Isaiah. You know, I, I encourage us as a church to feast on God's Word 
and to snack on the good stuff of life. Not feast on life and snack on God's words, but to do the reverse, right? Because we saw that all flesh is like grass and it's beauty like the flower of the field, that it withers, it fails, but God's word stands forever, right? Remember that? Remember that call? Right? And I feel like throughout this pandemic, I've been trying to remind myself and, and us as a church, feast on God's words, have his words abide in you, right? That it's, it's critical for our abiding in Christ, and you and I see how when we abide in other words and other things abide in us, when we saturate ourselves in obsessing over other things, when we saturate ourselves in, you know, social media or uh, the outrage in political news or whatever it might be for you, right, we bear fruit from that, right, because there's something that's shaping us as we abide in those words. But as you abide in the words of Christ, that shapes you as well, right? This is how we abide right? We, we treasure His voice above all, and we seek to hear His voice preached over all the other voices in our lives. But the second thing we're called to do here, this is how we abide, is we what? Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You want to abide in Jesus, let His words abide in you, but make your home in His love. Right? The, this is really critical. The, the, the verb here in the original language is in the aorist tense, okay? I would only bring this up if this is important, okay? Because I know most of you don't care about grammar, okay? But nonetheless, this is critical, okay? This is crucial because in, in grammar, the aorist tense is a verb that's in the past tense, but it's communicating that the action has an ongoing, unshakable effect in your present and forever, so what does it say? As the Father has loved Jesus, Jesus has, aorist tense, past tense, loved you. We look back to a moment more than any other, we know He has loved me in the cross, and in that empty tomb. And that wasn't a past tense, once for all, maybe not anymore kind of thing. It's that happened, and that is exactly the same today. It's carrying on through my, through my present moment. Jesus is saying, I've loved you, and this wasn't just for a moment in time. It didn't end. It's, it's ongoing. It's fixed, right? And, and the way that we're supposed to understand how you are loved, the love that you are supposed to abide in, is looking at how the Father has loved the Son. How has the Father loved the Son? We would all look at that and go, wow, look at the love that God shares, we go, in the same exact way, He has loved you. That's the love I'm supposed to make my, my home in, right? Do, do you make, do you live, do you, do you make your home in that reality? This is what it means to abide, that you stay in that place. Right? This is what it means. It's reminding ourselves constantly that there is nothing we can do that would make God love us more. And there's nothing that we have done that would cause Him to love you less, no matter what it is that comes to your mind, right? Well, I mean, what if you gave away all of your money, like literally all of it? You drained the bank account. What if you did that? Think He'd love you more? Well, what if you finally just 
stopped being an, an angry, miserable spouse. You know, what if you became a, a very, the most loving and present parent with your kids? You were never distracted, you know? Well, what if you, what if you gave up your job, you sacrificed everything, and you went to the Himalayas, and you became a foreign missionary to the unengaged peoples in the Himalayas? Do you think he'd love you more than he does right now? You know, what if for the rest of your life, you never had one single lustful thought. Do you think God would say, okay, now you're my good boy. There's my daughter. Do you think he'd love you more? No, he can't. Why? Because as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Make your home in that. Make your home there. Guys, the call to glorify God is, is in being a disciple, and this is what it looks like. You don't, you don't do much other than make your home in Jesus and, and fight to make your home there. And you do it by letting His words abide you in you. And you do that by remaining in His love. Well, what does this abiding produce it produces a fruit that glorifies God. This abiding glorifies God. That's why we exist. We exist to glorify God. But it actually comes as a result of abiding, right? Verse 8 is, is key here. What does it say? By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So prove to be my disciples. Right? How can you really know that you're abiding in Jesus? Do you just go around, you say, well, I, I read the Bible every day, I've even memorized it, you know? I, get, I do all these things, I, I come to church, you know? I, uh, you know, I, 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 I have no doubt that God loves me. I've never doubted that day in my life, you know? Like, is that, is that kind of what it is? Is that what it means to be a disciple? Well, no, there, there's a way to know, and it's everywhere in this passage, what does it say? You will bear fruit. It says it two times in verse 2. It says it once in verse 4. It says it again in verse 5. It says it in verse 8. And then all the way down in verse 16, it brings it up again, doesn't it? Like we really have to try to get away from the thinking that just because we or, or someone else says that we're a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that we're a Christian. Right? The Bible is clear. You will know that you are a disciple of Jesus if you are abiding in Jesus, and you'll know that you're abiding in Jesus by the fruit that you bear. It's, it's looking at the fruit from our life, and it's like, is that, is that Christ-like? Is that Christ-like? Is that Christ-like? You know? What's the fruit? The Bible is clear both here and elsewhere that the fruit is that. It's, it's Christ-likeness. It's exhibiting from my own life, my, my growing and becoming more and more like Jesus. So we have classic places like in, where Paul talks about in Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit, that I'm abiding, I'm getting that sap from the life of God is what? It's, it's love, right? It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's gentleness. It's faithfulness. It's self-control. This is the stuff I'm picking off the branches of my life, right? But you don't have to go to Galatians to figure that out. You can go to our own passage because what does it say in verse 11? It says, I've spoken these things to you right? So that my joy may be in you, it may be full. There's that joy, 
right? In the previous chapter, Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, right? There's this peace in our life. We even see in verse 10 the, the fruit of faithfulness because Jesus says, if you abide in my love, you will keep my commandments. You'll be faithful to me. But then we must ask even, well, what are his commandments? You know, do I have to memorize a list of all these commandments? No, he tells you in verse 11, verse 10, and in verse 17 even, what is it? It's to love one another. Well, there's that fruit of love, isn't it? Right? The, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you see, when you make your home in Jesus, Jesus will pour out of you as what you make your home in pours out of you, and we get that. We totally get it. Like yesterday, I, I went fly fishing on the, the chutes with, uh, in Maupin with Joe Bryant, right? It was amazing. And before we hit the river, we stopped in this fly shop as we wanted to get some advice, like what, you know, what's working on the river, that kind of thing. And we walk in, and, and the person that we found working there was exactly the kind of person who I would imagine would work at a fly shop in Maupin, okay? Like to a T. I didn't even bat an eye about it, right? It was just like, yeah, of course. I didn't even think about it. Well, I would have thought about what Joe and I would have thought about is if we walked into that fly shop to get some advice for fly fishing, and there's a guy behind the counter with a suit on, you know, eating a croissant, drinking some espresso, you know, maybe watching a game of cricket, yelling at the TV in French, you know, that kind of thing. And we try to ask him what's working on the river, and he's like, you know, does he know anything about fishing? You know, that would have been like, where are we? Like, what is happening? This doesn't make sense, right? That wouldn't make sense because we know that what you make your home in produces a kind of life, right? Produces a certain action. Okay, we would expect to find somebody like that in France or somewhere in Europe, right? That's what we would expect, or maybe Eastern Canada, I don't know, right? What we found was, was what we would have thought we would have found, right? A knowledgeable person who loves the outdoors, right? Talks like they're from Maupin, right? And that's not a negative thing. I don't even know what Maupin people are like, but it was what we thought we would have found, right? Where you abide, you bear fruit that you live there. We get that. So in a very real and tangible way, how can we know that we're abiding? Our lives are glorifying God. Our lives are doing that. And primarily we do that in the way that we love one another as He has loved us. That's what this emphasis is saying for us here. So we go, well then how has He loved us? We've been talking about it, right? We look to the cross. We see that Jesus didn't just lay His life down and die for His buddies. He died for His enemies didn't he? That's like the standard of love that we have. So therefore, as his followers, we glorify God when we bear fruit that exemplifies love in the same exact way. When I'm dying to self because I love you, that glorifies God, right? That glorifies God this is why verse 8 says, when we follow him, we will produce something, and in producing something, it will prove that we are his disciples. How that word literally prove means to turn and to become, to undergo a change in our life. It's so dramatic. It's, it's like a change of address kind of dramatic. This is what it means, guys, to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who, who learns from another person, who follows that person, who obeys that person and ultimately becomes like that person, right? This involves teaching, right? That person will teach you that that's getting into your mind, right? It would shape even your will, that's your heart, and will affect the way that you live. That would be your hands, 
right? This is a head, heart, and hands, holistic kind of way of being discipled. As whoever you follow, you will become, or you will at least imitate. As a kid, I, I idolized Ken Griffey Jr. He's like my hero, and so um, I tried to swing the bat like him. I tried to stand like him in the batter's box. I, if it wasn't working, I would turn my hat around because he would, and I thought maybe that would work. You know, I would buy his Nike Ken Griffey Jr. cleats as I stepped into the batter's box, thinking that would somehow help a little bit, and it, it just never helped. But I was doing the best I could, you know, to imitate who he was, and when that didn't work, I would just kind of go down the superstar ladder to, well, maybe it's this guy next, you know, and maybe this guy. And I would, I would imitate people because I wanted to become like them right? We have that kind of thing happening here, but it's actually a little bit deeper because what's true here, according to John 15, is that you will imitate who you are. And in imitating who you are, like you become who you are aspiring to follow. I don't want to miss this here. Did you notice it says that those who abide will bear fruit, but let's acknowledge that's going to be a painful thing, right? Because for plants to flourish, they have to be pruned, right? Guys, we can't equate fruit with ease. If you abide in Jesus, it will be painful at times. But all the pain will result in life change and fruit that glorifies God. Right? This is not a lovely sounding idea, if you really think about what pruning is, but it's completely a necessary one. Pruning can, and it definitely will hurt. Right? If we are fo- followers of Jesus, we must be ready for God the Father's pruning knife. God, God is glorified when we bear fruit, quality fruit, and lots of fruit, and for that to happen, extra things that are growing in our lives might need to be cut away. The gardener takes out of our lives only those things, though, that are a loss for us to keep and a gain for us to lose, right? There might be times where God is cutting things out of your life and doing things that are painful and that hurt that don't often make sense to you. Maybe that's happened to you a lot this year. But you can trust that whatever he's cutting away is only for your overall health, it's only for your overall vibrant life, and you're abiding in Jesus, But more than that, you can trust that God hasn't left you, that God isn't now distant from you as you endure that kind of pruning pain in your life, but He's actually nearer to you than He ever is. Because if you think of what a vine dresser is and how they prune, think about it. A vine dresser is never closer to the vine, taking more thought over the long-term health of that branch and its vitality than when the vine dresser has the knife in his hand. This is not an image of a machete standing from afar just chopping off pieces. This is very intimate. It's nearness. This is is the goal that we would bear fruit, that we would glorify God. As I'm curious if the vine dresser were to come close to us this morning as a church, at GBC, what kind of fruit would he find? What kind of fruit would he find? Would we want God to come near? Right? Well, we desire him to prune our lives no matter what the pain would be. Right? The fruit we bear at GBC, guys, is it's honestly just a culmination of all the fruit that we bear in our individual lives because the church is not an organization, the church is people. And so each one of our lives, the fruit that we bear is the fruit that we bear at GBC. That's what it is. 
So what kind of fruit would the vine dresser find? Why are we digging the ditch today, tomorrow, and the next day? Why are we digging? It's because we exist to be people who display evidence of God's glory, right? That we display evidence of God's worth. We display evidence of God's character, His weight, and His beauty through our praise and actions. And this will only be true of us if you and I seek to abide in Jesus. Where, where, where are you abiding this morning? What and who are you glorifying? Father God, this morning we do uh, want to come to you and I pray, God, we pray that you would make us people who are receiving your life as we abide in you. Lord, may, may our food, may our sap, God, truly be your words and your love and God, would you receive so much glory through our lives, through our, through our corporate life of a church, as a church, God, we pray um, that you would glorify yourself in our church. God, that our hearts would beat for your glory. God, that we truly would be people who rest and abide in you. God, if we need to come home to you this morning, I pray that you would reveal those places where we, we need to do so. God, that we would come running back to you today. I pray that you would speak to us and do a work in our lives that only you can do, God. We know and we trust that your word does not return to you void, and so we pray that it would accomplish its purposes for us this morning as a church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.